Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, everybody. What's up, monkeys? It's Larry Morgan here. Welcome to episode number 46 of the Snark Monkey Podcast with big-time TV director Barnett Kelman. Well, also a director of film, of stage, and currently a professor of cinematic arts at USC. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's actually uh, got a new play coming up in New York that he's about to get started in rehearsals. I'll tell you more about that coming up. Barnett Kelman, a really great conversation. He is best known for directing, I believe it is 76 episodes, basically the first three seasons plus, I guess, of Murphy Brown, the Candace Bergen series in the 90s. And we dig into that a little bit because uh, that it, he was such a big part of that team. And it was kind of... Uh, a groundbreaking show for its time, and uh, we find out, where is Murphy Brown? Why is it anybody talking about her, and why can't we see that show? He explains that a little bit, and also just has a great story about how he went from the world of theater to the uh, slimy Hollywood world of television. And I say that with all due respect. <laughs> hey, um, as we're posting this, everyone is still kind of reeling and processing the death of Prince. And I just wanted to throw in my own two cents worth. I posted uh, a, a remembrance on my Facebook page. If you want to check that out, look for Larry Morgan. Of uh, Going to see the Rolling Stones in concert at the L.A. Memorial Coliseum in 1981. It was the Tattoo You tour. I was in college at USC, so I was right there around the corner, just a couple of blocks away. In fact, uh, myself and a bunch of friends, Pete Siegel, Don Feldman, Pete Jones, a bunch of us, racing through classes to get over to the venue to get there early enough. When you were young and you actually wanted to see every single act and get a good spot on the field, down on the ground, and, and plan on staying there all day long on your feet watching great music. The Rolling Stones, uh, as their opening acts, brought the uh, Jay Giles Band, George Thorogood, and this young, upstart, funkified guitar player and singer known as Prince. Now, I was aware of Prince. Most people were aware of Prince because he had already had a pretty big hit, number one song, I Want to Be Your Lover, in 1979. But he hadn't really been heard much since then, even though he had released, I guess, two albums since then, or another album since then. And uh, in hindsight, I don't know, maybe the Stones... Uh, my, my memory says that the Stones handpicked Prince to open the show because they just were so impressed with, you know, his musicianship and his take on things and his artistic vision and his showmanship. And it makes sense because Mick and Keith and the boys were those kind of people. They were always their own version of kind of musical renegades and probably saw a lot of appeal in, in what Prince's music was. And 
maybe they just didn't realize for that crowd of 100,000 people, and that's not an exaggeration, crowded into the L.A. Memorial Coliseum that day. And when you got a lineup of nothing but kind of blues rock guys, that maybe this (laughs) somewhat unusual artist wouldn't be the greatest fit. And opening acts have a tough time anyway, just getting people to pay attention. But this place was packed. So Prince comes out, and the L.A. Times reported on this, and you can find it online, and and they say it was uh, a bikini with a trench coat over it, and maybe that's true. I, I know he was dressed very oddly. It was a pretty warm day in October for him to be wearing any kind of long coat. And, you know, Prince has this kind of weird androgynous look, and the music kicks off, and it's, oh, it's so not what these people are expecting. And he's playing a lot of music nobody's heard before because the album, I guess, which was Controversy at the time, hadn't really kind of kicked in. Nobody had really heard this. He only got through five songs. I mean, maybe you don't, for this crowd, go right to the song Jack You Off as your third tune. So by the time stuff starts getting thrown at him, and there are literally boos overshadowing the applause and shouts. Uh, he was getting miffed, and he didn't stay around very long. Maybe he was only supposed to play five songs, but he was obviously not having fun. Now, I was there with, like I said, my buddies, and I was standing, for the most part, next to my roommate, uh, Pete Jones. And we looked at each other, at, probably right after Jack you off, to be honestly, and we're like, well, that was, that was actually really good. I mean, we were enjoying the groove of it. We it, it, it had a great sound. There was something, and I'm not saying we were this kind of eclectic, music-loving duo here. There were a lot of people in the crowd who liked, but there were more people being vocal about, get off the stage, you weirdo, essentially. Pete and I were into it. So, yeah, that was rough, and that was a rather notorious set. It has uh, kind of gone down in music legend, uh, because obviously, that was 81. Three years later, he was maybe arguably the biggest artist on the planet, he and maybe Michael Jackson. And by the time the Purple Rain album came out, well, please. But look, that's what happens. You know, I talk to so many creative people on this podcast, nobody at the level of a prince, say, but everybody's journey when they get to a place of success usually comes from a place of sticking to your guns creatively when a lot of other people are telling you you can't or you shouldn't or you should go a different direction. I mean, the really, truly brilliant innovators are the ones who are absolutely perfectly clear on what they should be doing And they're just going to have to keep going until the rest of the world catches up. And that should be inspiring to anybody who aspires to be creative because Prince was going to get booed. He was going to have people look at him strangely. He was tiny. He was quiet. He was wearing, you know, feminine garb uh, well before anybody ever thought that that was even remotely acceptable. He He was wearing makeup. He was kind of combining this hybrid of rock and funk. And, I mean, you listen to When Doves Cry Now, and you go, oh, that's Prince. That's a great song. That's from Purple Rain. But when that first got played on the radio, because I was one of the first people to ever play that on the radio on KISS FM, it sounded weird compared to what else was on the top 40. Weird, but amazing, right? And by the time it caught on, and then 
you know, let's go crazy with that squealing crazy solo and people start to c- comparing him to Hendrix, the second coming of Hendrix as far as guitar playing, and I think that was valid. And then the guy goes on to make, what, 40-something albums? And even when he's not being played on the radio, still packing venues and still innovating? I mean, as we continue to hear more details about his death, it's it's tragic to hear that you know, sometimes these really huge figures in music and and film and television and you know they have these demons that none of us in the public know about but you know i choose to remember the legacy of his amazing music how he innovated how he i, I frankly i love people who end up succeeding by rubbing people the wrong way a little bit so i don't look back at that event at the coliseum in 1981 and disparage the people who booed. I am willing to bet that a lot of the people who booed and even some of the people who threw stuff at him (laughs) are now saying, I was there! I saw him! And probably have at least one of his albums in their collection and can probably sing along to every word of Little Red Corvette. I don't fault them for what they did. It was rude, and it's inappropriate. But... You know, we fear what we don't understand, and it was hard to understand Prince at that time. But once the world comes around to what you are trying to do, and then they buy in, that can be a beautiful thing. And Prince did some beautiful stuff. You crazy, sexy motherfucker. So, R.I.P. Prince Rogers Nelson. But long live Prince. God damn it. All right. So let's take a screeching left turn now. (laughs) And uh, thanks for indulging me in that. And uh, let's talk to another uh, incredibly creative type, somebody who had a, a, a fantastic career and is continuing to create and also passing along his knowledge to people. The next creative artist, who knows what sort of genius will come out of his teachings at USC's Cinematic Arts Division. But wow, what a great story, and uh, I I really love talking to Barnett. So please enjoy Barnett Kelman, Snark Monkey number 46. Guy. We were just talking about how you have assimilated to the Los Angeles climate and culture with wearing a sweater on a 71-degree day. <laughs> That's right. Um, but you were you born and raised in New York? I was born and raised in New York. Not, I wasn't raised in Manhattan. I always wished I was. But I was born in Manhattan, so I always make that clear to people. No, I was raised ignominiously. I am a Manhattanite, even if I didn't live even there. Even if I was raised ignominiously on Long Island. You know. <laughs> but that is a point of pride for people. That, that, those it is gr- now. It still very much is. <laughs> was it always that you know Manhattanites and Islanders and you know Brooklynites? I mean, it, it was. Was it always that distinct of? a lifestyle or a cultural difference? 
it's impossible to explain. I, I grew up in a matchbox size house in a track development, one of the first ones on Long Island, and my relatives called it the country. <laughs> <laughs> it's impossible to explain that. I was we I grew up 70, 17 miles from Times Square and yet people viewed it as a gigantic trek into the wilderness right. to get there. It was a big deal. We had a patch of lawn. I mean a patch of lawn, but that was a big deal for people in my family. Have you seen the film Brooklyn, which is getting so much attention I right sure now? I sure have. Yeah. There is that moment where he yeah. he takes her out to this pasture that right apparently becomes a tract or something in Long Island. Well, I actually I actually have that I have that kind of memory, very indelible memory in my experience from a time when it was impossible for me to have that memory. And actually it's it's uh it's the opening of the first screenplay I ever wrote, which was called The Development, which was about mm. the 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 developments of those those post-war Levittown type um developments that started on Long Island. And uh, what it was was that um, my parents had plunked down money for a piece of land in one of these housing projects, as it were. And um, we would drive out uh, on the weekends. And I was all of three and four years old. Mm -hmm. So I... I remember the rides. I remember the long car rides. But how much I – I have images. It's all image. How could it be anything else? But the one thing I remember is standing on the land and looking at the foundation, the hole where the foundation right. was dug. And the way my parents walked around this foundation like it was – such a big deal, you know, to own land. Right. So, yeah, I was kind of very humble beginnings on Long Island. <laughs> it was a place, you know, it was actually a wonderful place to grow up. It was actually a wonderful community, and I couldn't wait to get out of there as fast as possible <laughs> and let let everybody believe that I was really from Manhattan and a sophisticate. Well, so you, when you were growing up there, it definitely felt like the country, at least in terms of being well, we removed from... The, the hot spot, the civilization oh. that you wanted to be a part of. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And the city was just tantalizingly close to drive you crazy yeah. and make you think you could or would. You know, everybody's in those days, dads, not moms, but everybody in the neighborhood's dads worked in the city. Yeah, so they were so they were all in. commuters. Everybody was dropped off in the morning at the train to just take the train ride, the Long Island Railroad, into Manhattan to It was work that in. sea of gray flannel it with the hats exactly going in. What, yeah. It was exactly what it was. But So it was a world that, was, that you were ultimately going to feed into in some way, but it's not where we lived and we didn't ride the subway ourselves and we didn't mm -hmm. you know we didn't hang out in the village ourselves we we had our nose pressed to the glass of that kind of stuff <laughs> the same the same way as kids from Iowa did <laughs> what what did uh, dad do well my dad was an attorney okay yeah. so a professional man obviously a very yeah. different type of uh, i mean was anybody oriented towards show business at all was well, there a I, hint you know, of that no. I mean, I had no contacts. I had absolutely no door in whatsoever. But my dad had been – my dad was a kind of a raconteur and was recognized as such. So he was – it's, it's, it's he, was, he was of a different generation. He was quite, quite a bit older. He was 40 when I was born, which yeah. in those days was – made him an old dad. I mean, he was – he went into World War II when he was in his – you know, 30s, you know, so all his 
all the guys in his platoon were 18. He was the old uncle in the situation. But he was of the generation that were like um, raconteurs and compeers and what they called Catskill uh, tumblers. He was a joker and a storyteller and like George Jessel, a eulogizer. He was the guy you asked to speak at any event. He was the guy who did the introduction. Yeah. Good um, with the quip. He was able to he was, uh, think on his feet. Absolutely. That guy. He said amazing things off mm-hmm. the cuff. I still hold paper. I can't work without – I'm afraid to make remarks without paper. My dad never did, except I watched him prepare. I was the one who saw him in the basement. I saw his note cards. I saw, I still have them. I saw his notes. I saw his speaking watch. He had a special watch where, where he decorated the dial himself to tell him when he was going on too long. I mean, he oh, was a, wow. a real character. So he, he did it quite professionally, and he gave speeches, part of what he did. Well, was he a trial lawyer? Or, oh, not oh, at all. So this it wasn't even related to just no, his no, no, experience? No, no, his law, law, Lawyering was his training, and he went in, in and out of practice. Um, he actually he actually did work for a thing called the American Jewish Committee, uh, and he was also a kind of a – how do you put this – uh, he his job was to uh, search out, monitor, keep track of anti-Semites around mm-hmm. the country, and also to travel. So he was on planes at an early age, at, when I was little, at an early time in, in air travel. He would get on planes and go to um, L.A. and speak to the local, the L.A. Jewish community and tell them what the state of affairs was nationally and get inform you know and get their feedback and their complaints and their concerns then he'd go to Dallas and do the same thing and then he'd go to Cleveland and do the same thing so he worked for a national Jewish organization oh, interesting now how did that uh, reflect upon the family were, were you very religious were Not you Orthodox no? nothing to do with that so culture, <laughs> culturally certainly yes. Jewish um, but but it had nothing to do with a religious commitment right. but certainly a cultural commitment I mean these were these were you know this was post-war America. This is right after, you know, right after World War II, right after the Holocaust. Right. So so these were very, very real concerns. Um, it was changing times. It was Philip Roth times, you know. Yeah. And and mom was pretty much a housewife, kind of traditional? Well, she was or? a renegade housewife. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah she was a, <laughs> I'm an only child, so I, I'm the keeper of a lot of family secrets. But she, uh, which all of which obviously I'm going to spill to you today on Excellent. radio for whatever reason. Good. Uh, no, it saves no, the time of having to write a book or something. No, she, um, uh, she had been a bookkeeper before I was born, before they got married. And, you know, this was the days when women didn't work. I mean, this was madman time, right? Right. And um, fortunately, we have a show to point to now so that somebody younger than me in the audience could possibly imagine what I'm talking about. They have a visualization right. of it. Because so it does seem very foreign now. Well, that's what it was. Those were the times, and women stayed home. And she got, once as soon as I was, like, in fourth grade and, you know, was going to school on my own and didn't need... She said she 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 went back to work, but she never told my dad. She never told my dad. For how it was, long? It was my secret, hers, my secret, and hers. We never talked about it. I when he found out, whenever he found out or figured it out, it was one of those things in the family we never discussed. I mean, even so when she, I was in college, we didn't talk about it. It would it would just not be accepted. It was That's not right. what you did. Wait, no. And so she was bookkeeping, basically, yeah, somewhere yeah. nearby? Yeah, exactly. Far, close enough so that she could drop him off at the train, go to her job, 
she was not home when I came home from school. I would let myself in and eat my chocolate cookies and watch the Three Stooges on TV. Excellent. And then eventually she'd come, she'd come home in time to make dinner and then go pick him up at the train station. And mum's the word. That's that, that's a, she that's was a, a story. That's yeah. a great – well, there's a film in there you know, somewhere. She was a, and she explained it to me because she explained it to me. She said, you know, your dad, the, the men have a thing about this and they, they feel like it somehow reflects on them if their wives are working like they right. can't. But he says it's got nothing to do with that. Your dad does a great job, you know, providing for us. I just need to work. So – I'm going to do that, and you're not going to say anything about it. You know, I experienced much. So this- I, be- I, I became a traitor to my gender right at a very early age. Yeah. Uh, boys love their moms, though. <laughs> well, I had a. It's so funny because I had a very similar experience, but in the '70s, where it, it, that's how long it lasted. It was the yeah. you know uh, women's lib and yeah. that whole thing. You've come a long way, baby. And my mom got inspired once my little sister was old enough to right. kind of be taken care of. Um, I was coming home alone all the time and watching the Three Stooges, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> they, they stand the test of time. Exactly. And, uh, and uh, having my little chocolate cookies and, and waiting for mom to come home. That's, that's wild. So where along that line did you start to gravitate to something entertainment-oriented? What kind of kid were you? Uh, good, good student? Good student. Were, was that important to them as an only child? Oh, was absolutely. Was there you know, a lot of pressure on you to, to be a certain <sighs> There was a lot of pressure, but it was the kind of pressure that that almost didn't need to be spoken of. It was in the water. You know, it was, yeah, you're going to you're going to go to college. It was just what it was. Right. Yeah. You're going to go to college. and But here's the catch. And you asked back about, about my dad, and I was trying to explain lawyer and American Jewish Committee and what's all that about and stuff like that. The bottom line is... He he never wanted to do any of that stuff. Oh, really? He, he would have loved to have been in showbiz. What 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 was his background? What? Oh, well, his background was the depression. His yeah. background was a poor was a poor kid, we, and you had to find a job, yeah. and you had to find a way to support yourself, and then ultimately you had to find a way to support a family. So those were the realities. He didn't have the option, but he always said that the that 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 everybody on Manhattan Beach, there were two funny guys, him and Zero Mostel, and everybody said he was funnier than Zero. You know, so that's what I grew up with. Basically, I grew up with the fact that he never got to do it. Right. And so he really was, even though there was no question that I was going to, you know, go to college and there was no question that I was going to do something, quote unquote, professional or whatever, the bottom line was he encouraged me to do whatever made me happy. And they put up no resistance really when i suddenly said uh you know i'm gonna go into the theater of course not there was no way he was gonna block your path to do something that he maybe wished he had had the chance no i think i scared the hell out of him sure you know and i didn't make a penny for a decade you know and i think that was frightening to people who came out of their backgrounds but um but the bottom line was they knew early on. I, I, I Early on, I, I was singing and dancing and acting, you know, all in the school plays and all in my living room and all for every family <laughs> guest that family. came in yep, and yep. everything like that. I was doing that stuff really early on. And uh, I became – I was a real geek. And, and I would do things like um, – we didn't – we really didn't have a lot of money. We certainly didn't have money to go into the city and go to – 
Broadway you weren't seeing plays. shows, yeah. No, but I was seeing them on the early days of television. Mm-hmm. The early days of television used to broadcast those things. Right. I used to see great plays, actual live plays being done live. But broadcast, or at least like the big production numbers, kind of like the way they do on the uh, the Tonys now. Ed Sullivan would have yes, Fiddler on the Roof do a big number, and like is suddenly happening with uh, Hamilton. This is the first time this. Well, first time I'm really conscious of how much this is happening, but where people, where a lot of people have the recording before they go see the show. Right, the cast. Everybody had the cast album of every Broadway show way before they ever saw it, or if they saw. There wasn't anybody that didn't have the cast album of My Fair Lady. There wasn't anybody that didn't have the cast album of West Side Story. There wasn't anybody that didn't have the cast not uh, cast album of Fiddler on the Roof. Certainly not that I knew. I grew up with uh, my grandparents playing the Music Man over and over and over again, and I didn't realize until later that it was even a play. It was just music they loved. Well, I was all too aware aware of the fact that they were were plays (laughs) and that they were only 17 miles away, but I couldn't quite get there. (laughs) So what I used to do was, with my paper route, you know, classic stuff, I used to put away my savings and on I would save up my money till their anniversary and I would buy three tickets to a Broadway show in the you know balcony for like three dollars and forty cents a piece it was still enough money I you know I mean that was still a a deal believe it or not I mean you know it that's hard to imagine 50 (laughs) cents a week you know whatever um I would save up the money and uh, give them the tickets, happening also happening to have one for myself, right. just in case they wanted to, you know, take me for their anniversary. So I got to see shows. I was that kind of selfish. What did you kid. see? What, what what what's the memory that uh, sticks with you? How to succeed in business was <gasps> unbelievable. Robert Morris. Robert Morris. Oh Bobby my Morris, God. and that was so. Funny. It was. You can ridiculous. say anything you want, by the way. <laughs> oh, so fucking funny! I'll never forget his performance. Not from me. I've read about that play so many times. Oh my I mean, God. and the movie only hints at it because you can tell that it just it it's it's so clunky that the filmed version of that yeah. to yeah. Mu- to have seen that saw, performance yeah. live. I saw that live. Wow. One of the ones I saw live was uh, there was it. Would, it only lasted like two weeks, and I happened to buy into it. Um, you know, it was the right two weeks. I saw I can get I can get it for you wholesale, oh. which was Barbara Streisand's debut. Barbara Streisand and Elliot Gould—that's where they met, right? And it lasted for two weeks. Yes, a legendary. Bomb. It wasn't a great show. No. Yeah, no, no, no. It wasn't a great show, but I saw it. Yeah. yeah. Oh wow. So you, so you were aspiring to that. I mean, you were aspiring to the stage. That yeah. was where you were headed. That was absolutely. So where did you end up going? For school. For school. Ah. Well, I, you know, where did I end up going? That was an interesting, I, I, I took an interesting turn on there. And you're absolutely, you know, we were talking before about these surprise turns and you don't, you don't know. I actually, there, there, um, I had decided I wanted to go to Dartmouth. Let's hasten to say I did not get accepted. <laughs> okay. And besides the fact that it was, uh, you know, a prestigious Ivy League school that had, you know, this incredible reputation for people getting drunk and having fun and... Uh, besides that, they had the Hopkins Center, which was a relatively new theater. And it was a big deal, and it was something that they advertised. As a matter of fact, I was more aware of the Hopkins Center there than I, – I saw more mention of that in their literature than I did of any sort of other kind of Ivy League school. So I wanted to go um, to Dartmouth and 
get to work on the ho- at the hop on that stage. Yeah. And I visited, and I was I was enamored. Um, and to hedge my bet, I applied to Colgate, which is a wonderful school upstate New York, which turns out to have a student body made up largely of people that didn't get into Dartmouth. <laughs> and Colgate was in the process of building a – they were building a new art center. The theater was a tiny little, you know, room in the basement of the English building. But they were building a new art center. And I, I don't know how I did this. I really don't know how or why I did this. And especially now, being a teacher at USC, it, it seems even more strange to me. But when I went up to visit the school, I asked to meet the head of the theater. And I said, I, 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 if I come here, I want to come here and do theater. There was no theater program. You oh, they didn't even have a formal program. There's no such thing. In those days, nobody in the Ivy League did. I mean, they, all theater was in the English department. There were some big schools like Carnegie and stuff like that that, right. that really had theater programs. But there was no such thing at liberal arts colleges, at least in that part of the country, in right. the East, as a theater program, because they considered it non-academic. They considered right. it an extracurricular. So it was under the English department, and it was like a, you know, after-school activity, right? <laughs> Something you organized uh, on your own. Yeah, yeah, basically. Or they would have one member of the English department who would be responsible for putting on plays and maybe teaching a course. Yeah. That's, and that's what it was at Colgate. But he was about to get a new theater. And this guy looked at me, and Colgate is like in a town of 2000, upstate New York, Five hours from the city, nobody in their right mind had ever wanted to go there for theater. And I walked in and I was asked, and this guy on his own, his name was Atlee Sproul, and he was a graduate of the Yale Drama School. And so, no, you know, he, 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 had, he knew his stuff. He knew his stuff. Okay. And he had worked his ass off for 10 years to get them to build him a theater. And here he was sitting on plans, not a theater. He didn't have the theater yet, but he had the blueprints. And here was a kid walking in saying, I want to see your theater. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I guess for him, I was manna from heaven. <laughs> He'd been sitting in the wilderness all alone all this time, and well, I walked in, in the door. But what inspired you to, was it, in, was it an in the chutzpah, moment? Chutzpah, pure chutzpah. But was it, was it calculated, or was this an mean? in the moment thing? I mean, did you walk in the door, and, or, or were no, you? No, no. If I was going to go to this Fakakta country <laughs> school out of nowhere, I wanted to know that... I wanted to know they were going to have a stage I was that was going to be yeah. worthy of my aspirations. There we go. All right. <laughs> Is your spotlight big enough, sir? Yeah, seriously. Better build a stage you for got me. It. That's what it was. Wow. And the now, guy, where does that come the guy from? Comes, <laughs> where does the Hudsburg come from? Yeah. That I was born with. Okay. I can't tell you. I mean, you know, I don't know. That it, was, I mean, that me. was what pushed you to go up in front of even family members? And oh, it's yeah. Like, no, no, there no, was that, never any fear of being in front of people. I was definitely ambitious. Okay. I was never not ambitious. Wow. That's great. As a matter of fact, I, one, one time later on, I met, uh, I had an interview with an agent in New York, and he looked at me and he said, "Are you ambitious?" You know, and he looked at me as if I lacked ambition. I don't know why, uh, but that's what his point was. His kind of point was like, "Why should I, you know, spend time with you?" And I looked at him like. God, if anything, you know, I've always been ambitious. Nobody's ever doubted that. I mean, I, I'm trying to hide my ambition. What, are you kidding me? Am I doing a good job or something? Yeah, no, I was ambitious. So I walked in and I said, you know, can I see your, not your plan. I said, I hear you're building theater. I want to know about this. Because if I come here, I'd want to do theater. And 
this guy was a really proper, uh, really Anglo-Canadian from 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 a, 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 raw, a, a British upper-class family. So he didn't show a lot on his face. He had a great poker face. He didn't like his eyes didn't bug or anything, or his jaw dropped. <laughs> but he looked at me. And he dug into his desk and he pulled out the blueprints and he started to talk to me like I was a serious person. Which I think I would laugh at a kid if they did that to me now, but he took me dead seriously. Or he acted like it. He showed me a tremendous amount of respect, which was very meaningful is what I'm trying to say. I was very affected by this. And he showed me the plans and I went to Colgate. And when they built that theater six six months after I got there, well, sure. Shortly after I got there, I got the lead in the first play they cast. And then six months after I got there, I was the first person to speak on that stage in a lead. And, you know, it was after that. And he asked me to direct on the stage. I mean, he took me quite seriously. It was a tremendous mentorship. I got to I got to play Hamlet. Nobody wants to see my Hamlet. It was the funniest <laughs> Hamlet you've probably seen. <laughs> Although it wasn't billed as a comedy. No. But... But, uh, you know, I got to do tremendous stuff in the course of my four years there. And it was a foregone conclusion. He made it a foregone conclusion uh, in many ways that I was going to leave there and go to Yale Drama School. So it was a path, you know, um, which I, yeah. It sounds like you guys found each other. I mean, he he found the kind of the linchpin to inspire. Here was the 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 young man who I'm going to help kind of be the architect of building, building this program because you were more than ready for it. And, and it's true, but it, the accidental quality is, you yeah. know, it's just, you know, serendipity of it is, right. is amazing. But had you gone anywhere else, you wouldn't have had that opportunity. Well, that's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. You wouldn't have been the lead in the funniest that's Hamlet. Exactly of all time. Right. That's exactly right. So, so you did go on to Yale. I did go into Yale drama, although although by that time, you know, I it's funny because Colgate gave me a lot of opportunities. The chutzpah just sort of didn't stop there. You know, in my sophomore year, this is this is in those days there weren't college students did not have internships. That was not a thing. It was not a standard thing. It was not a standard thing to communicate. You know, there weren't avenues, there weren't websites, there weren't ways to communicate with your idols. But I wrote a letter in my sophomore year to Sir Tyrone Guthrie, who was the founder and the artistic director of the um, Guthrie Theater in Mm. Minneapolis. And I said, I've got the month of January off and I would like to come and be your assistant. And it was a letter, a handwritten letter, not a type letter, a handwritten letter. And no, that's not right. I probably typed my letter. But within a week, I got a handwritten letter back from him saying, that would be lovely. Thank you for your letter. This sounds, sound, you sound like a wonderful young man, but I'm, not, I'm going to be back in England or something like that during that period of time. But my wish my maybe some other time, and good luck to you. And the fact that he responded to me, you know, was like throwing oil on a fire. <laughs> so I sat right down and wrote a letter to Alan Schneider, who was a preeminent uh, Broadway director at the time. And he, and, and he wrote right back and said, Come and see me when you're in New York, which was going to be Thanksgiving vacation was the next time. So I went down to see him when I was in New York, and he took me on, and I was assistant on Edward Albee's A Delicate Balance and Robert Anderson's You Know I Can't Hear You When the Water's Running on Broadway. And, um, you know, it gave me a lot of confidence. Let me put it that way. It was very validating. 
are you still thinking performance at this point? No, or are you, you know, starting no, to no I'm transitioning yeah. to directing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I joined I, I I joined Actors Equity when I was nineteen and I loved acting. I absolutely loved acting, but I did have it in my head. I had this notion I used to advise people this, I've completely revamped it. I was completely wrong. I was probably right for me, but I was I, I was completely wrong as a general principle. I had this notion that if I wanted to direct, I had to stop acting, that people would not take me seriously um, as a director right. if I did anything else. I also had this notion at the time, which I don't teach this, by the way, but at the time, that I wouldn't take a job as a stage manager. I wouldn't do anything else except for direct. Yeah. And, well, I wanted that's... to make my money or whatever it was outside of the thing that I was saying I wanted to do. Right. So when I came to New York, I, I was like a motorcycle messenger. And then I wrote the captions for a 75-volume gardening encyclopedia <laughs> and things like that. Um, now, you know, just to... So you so. didn't want to just muddy the waters in a way? You felt like if I... If I get caught up in that aspect of of the craft, then I won't be focused on the well, thing that I, I want to do. Well, I thought that people, I I thought with no, with some justification that there's a tendency to pigeonhole people, right? And also a tendency to if you do something well, people don't really have an interest in in letting you out of that box, right? Right. Um, and so, for example, I I. Within a few years, uh, I, I wound up with my first um, directing my first gig for Joe Papp at the Public Theater, which was quite a big break. Yeah. And, uh, it didn't come right away by any means. It was circuitous, as all these things are. But there I was directing a small production, worked on it for over six months, got paid $500, but it was for Joe Papp at the Public Theater. And I had a casting director. And the casting director had an assistant. And the, I was working with the assistant, and he was a guy about two years younger than me. And here he was being a casting director, and he told me he wanted to direct. Uh, and I said to him, well, you're making a big mistake being a casting director, you know, because you're great at what you do, and they'll never let you direct, you know. So you're a fool to be a casting director. <laughs> and he, you know, I don't know what he He didn't say anything. Uh, he was wise not to say anything. <laughs> I was so cocky. Uh, and a few years later, I watched him win the Tony for a play he had directed. So I was completely wrong. Yeah. It, it, you know, I watched that cigar explode in my face. <laughs> I mean, he's a friend. He's been a lifelong friend, and, 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 and everything he got, he certainly deserved. So my idea w wasn't right for everybody. It wasn't right for him, but it was an important one to me. So I just focused on directing. I was, I was a nerd about it. Did Was theater the main focus? Or at the, at the time that you had talked before about the advent of television, theater and Broadway is feeding TV. TV is largely based in New York yeah. in those early days, and they're drawing so many of those right. that talent and those actors and those directors from there. So by the time I came up, there was no theater. There was no te uh, no television in New York. They'd all moved. It had all moved to the West Coast. So the television that I, if 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 Playhouse ninety was still going on when I came up, that might very well have been. Uh, where I ended up. Um, but uh, that was all gone. That was all way gone. Um, what did wind up happening, and I had had a, a dog leg with film. You asked if I went to Yale Drama School. I did go to Yale Drama School, but I was very itchy. I was very <laughs> antsy. And I wasn't really happy when I was there. Now, 
I wasn't happy when I was there for lots of reasons. Um, I don't, can't blame it on Yale, and I, and I'm still a you know fan of Yale Drama School. But I left after a year, uh, and I had a fellowship. I, I had been awarded from Colgate. They they got me a number of uh, two national fellowships coming out of Colgate. One of which was to travel. It's called the Watson Fellowship by Thomas J. Watson, who founded uh, IBM, and it was a traveling fellowship. So I had this money burning hole in my pocket. So once I got clear of the draft, which was a, another story, which we'll save for another time, because <laughs> you couldn't, I was one of the first Watson fellows and they told us, don't take it until you get your draft status straightened out because it was the Vietnam War. Right. And if you go out of the country and get called, you're going to be in trouble. Oh boy! So as soon as I got, as soon as I went through the physical and pulled the crazy and got out. <laughs> I'm sorry? As soon as I acted my way out of the draft, <laughs> I said it now. <laughs> there. Uh, There's that training coming in handy. Came in handy. I had this money in my pocket, and I took off to Europe. And basically, I spent a year doing film. I spent a year immersing myself in film, writing a film, going to two or three films a day, because you could do it in those days in Paris and in London. There were just repertory theaters. Of course, there was no VCRs. There There was no DVDs. There were no digital libraries. You had to go to the theater which would play films from morning to night. And so I, I gave and they're br- And they're bringing back all these classic films, too. Everything. This is a time where they're e- showing virtually every- anything everything. you would want to so see. So I saw all the Antonioni's, of course. I saw, <laughs> you know, I saw all the Fellini's, of course. I saw all the Truffaut's. I saw all the European cinema, but I also saw all of John Ford's work mm-hmm. there. I saw all of Howard Hawke's work there. Again, I mean, you're, and Europeans are building these people up, and, yeah. and Americans had kind of moved on from that stuff. So that was my film. Wow. That was my film graduate school. And then I came back to New York and I started um, directing I started directing plays because that's what I knew and I started directing the original productions of new American plays that happened I mean I didn't I just consider myself a director I had directed classics I was interested in directing classics but I also had directed some new plays and you know one thing led to another I just kept getting more opportunities to direct new plays um there a lot of people in the regional theater. My, I, I, if you had asked me then what do I wanted to do, I, I would have loved to have become the artistic director of a regional theater. But you know the funny thing is I couldn't get arrested out of town, but I was getting gigs in town. So you're working in New any, York all the time. I wasn't making any money, <laughs> but I was always directing new plays, yeah. and those players with good by good by terrific. I was going to say, are there are there no, some no, names major that, players? Yeah. yeah, I directed. I directed uh, early works of David Rabe, and that was what brought me to Joe Papp. Mm-hmm. So that was an enormous break. Um, I directed uh, Bill Hauptman's early work, two plays by him. Um, and he, he all went, went on to win a Tony for Big River, for the musical Big River. Uh, later on, I directed um, uh, Israel Horvitz's work. As a matter of fact, I'm going back to New York uh, in May to direct another Israel Horvitz play. Uh, so that was a, a tremendous opportunity. I directed um, Kevin Wade's uh, premiere uh, debut with Key Exchange, which actually turned out to be my big break. And Kevin went on to write Working Girl, for example. Um, and uh, I directed John Patrick Shanley's uh, yeah. debut, wow. uh, Danny in the Deep Blue Sea. I was working with a director placed by Donald Margulies, who went on to win a Pulitzer. I mean, I was working with really yeah. good writers, and learning how to 
help midwife those first productions, how to cast, how to create the world of those productions. And so I had a gig. I had a gig. And so television and film kind of drifted away. I was never thinking about television, as a matter of fact. I was just never thinking about it. It wasn't even on my radar. Yeah, you haven't mentioned it once in this path. I literally did not own a television. But what happened was, and there was a very strange story, what happened was that one day somebody, well, I did have a manager and a very smart, aggressive, well-placed manager in New York who, um, his name was Bill Tresh, and and at the time, we were all young, but at the time, he represented um, Meryl Streep and Sissy Spacek and John Hurd and Tom Hulse, and there was pretty much—Chris Walken, and there was pretty much nobody that Bill wasn't, you know, he wasn't in their lives. And Bill Tresh brought a soap opera producer— to one of the shows I did at a at a uh, an important theater, the American Place Theater in New York, to play, and this particular soap opera producer, his name was Paul Roush. He's the one that took soap operas from being a half hour to an hour. Mm. He was very ambitious, and he wanted high production, high level production value at a time when that was not considered important. And he wanted the best writers he could get, and he wanted the best actors. So he had started writing. He had started hiring playwrights. And as his writers, and then he started hiring whoever was the hot actor on Broadway. He would hire. So I, I worked on when I did his soaps. Ultimately, I worked with Morgan Freeman. I worked with Jose Ferrer. I worked with. There's basically nobody I didn't work with uh, that was in New York at that time because he was hiring them. But after he hired these big actors, and and you know he had great taste on the one hand. He also had a giant ego, and this fed his ego to have these. Sure. You know, he would see somebody in a show, say, I want you on my soap. I'm going to pay you money, you know? And he'd bring them in. But once he did that, he realized that he wanted directors that knew how to talk to actors. So his theory was, I can train a director who knows how to talk to actors to handle the cameras. I'm not sure I can train somebody who knows how to do the cameras how to talk to actors right. in the same amount of time. So he started a little school and a lot of, it turns out, quite, you know, a lot of the my generation of television, of people who wound up being television directors out here and film directors out here came through Paul Rausch's informal college. That was your graduate school that right there. That was my graduate that school. That was the so, real graduate school, yeah. 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 Wow. So yeah, you... you you were basically, and it obviously, and that was my bread job. That was my that was my ultimate yeah. bread job. That was paying for all these plays I was doing. I mean, this was not material that you were probably necessarily responding to no. that much. At, Absolutely, but it was nuts but and it, bolts of teaching you how where cameras went, how everything. that movement happened, everything. and also it was and a, making the best out of the best yeah. out of whatever you had. Yeah, in other words, it was true professionalism because. You know, because you, you, you had really good people there, and everybody's trying to do the best job they can, even though it may not be material of their choosing or the best, you know, it's stuff written in five minutes and stuff like that. <laughs> um, so, you, you know, your ego stepped out of it pretty quickly, and your craftsmanship level had to go up right. just to survive those days. We were producing an hour a day, and then Paul went really crazy, and he decided to up this, the um, – the, uh, 
soap opera to an hour and a half a day. And I and four other guys, three other guys, were the only ones that ever did an hour and a half of material a day. It only lasted for 12 months, but for 12 months, we were cranking it. That's that's insane. Yeah. That's insane. So when did the big leap come? When did the decision that you... I mean, you mentioned key exchange. Well, that you actually... just used a funny word, and it, <laughs> it kicks back to something you and I were saying a little while ago. You just used the word decision. There was no decision, yeah, yeah. none whatsoever, none whatsoever. So this guy walks in, sees a show off Broadway, says, "Would you like to come to my place?" And you know, uh, we'll teach you how to do a soap opera. I said, "Well, no, no not really." And he said, "He said, look, if you come and sit, trail my director for a month." I will give, I guarantee you, two tryout shows. For each tryout show, you get $750. Well, that was so much more money. I just told you I worked for six months for Joe Papp for $500. Right, right. So one day I'm going to get $750. I'll try out. So I did that and it worked out. And this guy was a genius because he gave you a second day. That's the, that's the kicker. He didn't give you one day, he gave you two. Because he knew you were going to fuck up on your first day, <laughs> right? But he allowed you to come back and try again. Right. And then based on how you came back, based on your bounce. So suddenly I had a bread job doing that stuff. So that now I was keeping body and, and soul together. But I made no decision about anything. It did not change my focus. My focus was on doing new American plays. But one day, again, serendipity, I, I, the play Key Exchange became a success off-Broadway, ran for a year. It got sold to the movies. The movies out here, you know, they didn't have any interest in the theater director who directed the play. They were out to everybody out here. And they went through three or four directors, went into development hell. And then finally, um, one day, one of the guys who was on the producer team turned around and said, you know, why don't we pull this back and do this as an independent and talk to the guy who directed the play that made us want to do it. Mm -hmm. So I directed a small feature in New York as my first feature. So now I had this multi-camera background from the soap operas. I had directed a feature on the streets of New York based on an off-Broadway hit that I had directed. And a new, brand new head of comedy at CBS, Greg Mayday, to whom I'll I'll forever be grateful was new at the job, and he said, you know something? When you're directing the pilot of a, of a half-hour comedy, it's like a play. And Greg had a theater background. And he said, it's like a play, and you're creating the world, and you're casting the characters for the first time. And maybe I should go look at the guys who can do that hmm. to direct pilots. Now, generally speaking out here, to get to do a pilot was a long, long road. You had to slog your way through years and years of episodic and convince somebody that you could make that leap into doing the first show. Yeah, it's a, it's it's like a, a, it's a specialty. Perk. I mean, it's specialty it, because it, it, a, it has to be, you have to introduce characters. Set the template. Tone. Yes, I mean. It, it, the look and the life right. of the show for the future. So, mm-hmm. And it's a big plum. It's right. truly a big plum to be able to do that. Um, this guy... Um, came to New York, met me, and immediately hired me to do two pilots for CBS. So based on his ambition, his crazy notion, 
I got introduced. Um, there were a couple of steps in between. I, I, I skipped a, a couple of minor uh, credentialing episodes <laughs> along the way. But basically, there was a huge leap there. That's a pretty remarkable jump. I jumped right into the pilot director's seat. Um, I, I had a couple of shows on the air right out of the gate. Um, they didn't last, but my second pilot season, and I'm still living in New York, and I haven't moved, and I have not decided to become a television director. Right. I'm a theater director who's coming out when with jobs, only coming out when they hire me, you know, and being and staying in, you know, the Magic Hotel and things like that. <laughs> and uh, uh, but but then I did the pilot of Murphy Brown, and, and that that was really the the. That was the first time that you realized you were going to be immersed in this probably for some time? Or it just did it just keep going? Because I want to talk about Murphy Brown, obviously, because that's a that's a major milestone in your career. Yeah. But it's also kind of a remarkable show and in, in, in how it impacted pop culture and, and so many things around it. But even at that point, I mean, where along the process of Murphy Brown starting to take off that you realize, oh... This is going to take over my life, right? Because you are credited for, and, and I believe even then, in this is early nineties, we're late eighties, early nineties, yeah, correct? Exactly. Um, there, there, typically, there wasn't just one director doing every episode of of a series. That's highly unusual. That was right? unusual. There were only, you know, mainly Jimmy Burroughs was doing that on Cheers, right? But other than that, that was not the standard. Because that's hard to do. I mean, yeah. usually yeah. a director, in episodic, a director is working on one episode and somebody else during that same week is prepping the next one. And so they Well, go, the prepping thing is, yeah, yeah, sort of. The prepping thing does not have as much uh, currency in half hour as it does in hour. Okay. But yes, generally speaking, they're splitting up the, the load of episodes among a group of people for right. a number of reasons, some of which I agree with, some of which I don't agree with. Um, but it's very much at the um, at the uh, the pleasure of the show running writer, usually. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are there are definitely writers out there that don't want to have one director. Right. They don't want to share the the parenting of the of the family. So you've gone through a couple of a couple of pilots, a couple of series you get into this one, and, and, and it has all the earmarks of being something special. You've got uh, a, a star who's got a certain reputation. Who's well, you do have to, you have to realize, of course, you know, I mean, it's a much-told story, but you've got to realize that the, nobody wanted Candace Bergen. I mean, the, by nobody, I mean the, the network. network. Right. So she was, not, she was not currency in television at the time. In fact, they, they just didn't believe that she could be funny enough to carry a sitcom. Did you believe it though? I yeah, mean, yeah, I absolutely did. Yeah. But the real inspiration, well, the inspiration clearly, well, the inspiration came from the William Morris office, to their credit, <laughs> and from Brian Lord. But it went through Diane English, who believed it. And Diane said it to me, and I immediately said, because I was a geek and I did know actors and I did know actors' credits. And I said, yeah, she was hilarious in starting over. And my feeling was if she was funny once, She'll be funny again. And she had, I can help her. She you know, had done SNL by that time. Exactly. I mean, but she had been done comedy. For some re weird reason, hmm. undoubtedly because of her looks and, and, and a prejudice about that, mm -hmm. you know, because it cuts both ways. I mean, she gets a lot of breaks because of it, but she also got a lot of 
non-breaks because of it. Some weird prejudice about a woman that beautiful not being funny. Um, there was amnesia. As soon as she got did that and was claimed for starting over, people forgot she could be funny. As soon as she was the host of Saturday Night Live, they forgot about it. It wasn't until Murphy Brown that it stuck yeah. that she was a comedian. Did you get the sense early on that there was... I mean, sensing something special doesn't necessarily mean success in a mainstream way. But you had you had Candace, and you knew there was something about her. But there was also some kind of brilliant alchemy going on in surrounding her with yeah. the right people. Well, we killed ourselves to do that, yeah. and, 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 and that paid off. I mean, we cast in a room for... Every single day for over a month, just seeing every actor you can imagine um, for those roles. And we put our heart and soul into building that ensemble and surrounding her. And literally the first time we got everybody together in a room, which was the night before the table read. And we didn't have our last piece of casting until the Friday before the Monday. Who was that? That was Grant Shaw. Oh, really? Yeah, that was the last piece. And that was the piece that was killing us. And we saw everybody. Mm -hmm. And we saw fantastic actors who, for one reason or another, just just didn't, they just didn't get us there. We, you know, we saw Jason Alexander, who's a friend and who I've worked with and I love working with, and just wasn't quite right for us at that time. We saw Ben Stiller, who wasn't quite Ben Stiller yet. We thought he was brilliant. Don't get me wrong. We right. thought he was brilliant, but not our guy, yeah, you know, yeah. we saw everybody, and at the and we and and I put out lists. I drew up lists, and I canvassed New York directors. And in those days, they let us call bring people from New York and fly people in from Toronto and Chicago, which they don't do anymore, uh, very much. Um, for all these parts, for the ensemble parts, not just for leads, uh, not just for the lead, uh, but but finally. On the Friday before, I was looking through the New York tapes, the videotapes that they sent. And um, what they would do in those is the casting director in New York would put a bunch of actors. We, I, we, we'd give them names, and they would then put those people on tape. But then when they sent the tape, there would be a note on it saying, look at this one, this one, this one, this one, trying to save you time. Mm -hmm. So we had checked those, and we didn't like them. And so the tape was sitting there, and Diane was on a phone call, and I started to fast forward through them. And then I saw Brent Grant, and I looked at it, and I turned on the sound, and I started to watch. And then I said, Di, come here. And she came over, and she started to watch, and we looked at each other, and we said, let's get them in. And this was like on a Wednesday or Thursday, and we came in the next day. We took him right to CBS. They gave him the part and said, he said, and it was Friday, and he said, we're starting on Monday. You can't go home. We'll get you. He said, I don't have any clothes. I didn't bring anything. I said, forget it. We'll buy you clothes. We'll buy you a toothbrush. Don't worry about it. You're in. And But the first time that weekend when we read with the whole cast together, uh, we felt we were onto something special. Yeah. And it was that way. It was a, a blessed week, and we had a we had so much fun working together. And the night of the shooting in the pilot went so well. And, and, and that was it. And it wasn't long. Once we were into the first order, making the first order, we were already saying things to each other like, 
no matter what happens. Then we weren't a hit by any means. We hadn't even opened yet. We right. hadn't even been on the air yet. But in the process of making it, we were having so much fun <laughs> that we were already saying to each other, you know, we're always going to remember this collaboration. Uh, talking about the the art of the pilot, which was one of the things that you started to become known for that is i i th- i can i'm such a tv nerd you know i have i remember sitting down at usc with my screenwriting uh, instructor mark harris at the oh, time yeah. when i was there and and we were you know supposed to be talking about my assignment or whatever and we somehow got on the subject of the cheers pilot which had just aired a few nights before and i think we talked for an hour just wow. about the we talked twice as long as the pilot was wow. I, I you know i have pilots are hard right. and and when they're good they are very memorable. And I still have a very indelible memory of Eldon's first entrance mm. as Candace is singing, mm-hmm. as Murphy is singing mm-hmm. uh, Natural Woman. Mm-hmm. Aretha, exactly. uh, she's big into soul. It was just part of her character. It's a great element of just immediately knowing kind of who this woman was. And when he comes around the corner and he scares the living shit out of her. And it is a laugh out loud moment, and that audience laughter seems incredibly genuine and, and amazing and overwhelming. And that I remember that feeling, that, and I remember that moment going. Personally, I'm in. I want to see these people. That's and, great. Well, that's, that's awesome. That's something about. I, I, but, I developed. A th- I mean, not developed, but I had a theory after that, and I and I and I I would use it. I would take it to every pilot I did, which is that there's. A moment on every show. That's exactly what it's going to ask you. It doesn't have to be. The pilot's never going to be perfect. The pilot's never going to be the best episode of a show. It shouldn't be. It's 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 just getting started. A show that's got any kind of legs is going to grow. But there's a moment that's got to happen. It does or it doesn't happen in the pilot that sells it. There's a moment that people buy in. There's a moment mm-hmm. or or it doesn't, you know. And yeah, I, I you're absolutely right about that moment. And if you think about it, there there's tremendous amount of wonderful and interesting offbeat stuff going on in television now. There's a lot of individual voices going on in television now. But the world that Murphy joined in and and, and, and there were certainly great shows like Cheers on and stuff. But you know that scene that you're describing didn't have a bunch of lines and a bunch of jokes. And it took a long time to play out. I mean, we had the time and space. That was a, a pure theater moment. Right. That wasn't a... Yeah, you're well, well into the that song. That wasn't She's... walk in and stand in front of the sofa and tell jokes to no, each other kind no. of thing. That was a character, pure character moment. And um, it took a lot of both courage and individual vision on Diane's part, Diane English's part, to have created that. And then it gave us the opportunity to realize that on stage. Mm-hmm. And the fact that that came across both to the audience and came across on camera, you know, was a very special thing. And at that moment, you're just like you, at that moment, I began to feel proud about the possibility of what I could do on television. I mean, because the truth of the matter is, I was a theater baby, and I was really looking at that time for tele- as television as a bread job. And with Murphy Brown, I started to think of it as much more, much greater opportunity. Because you got to be in a situation that satisfied all those things you were talking about. I mean, obviously, it's a comedy, and you're going to be dealing with the same characters over and over again, but you must have recognized that this is a situation that I, if I can make this, or try and make this happen every episode, if I can get this feeling, 
it, it, it can be very satisfying. Yeah, I quickly realized, remember I said before that I really wanted to, my, my original aspiration was to be the artistic director of a, of a, of a regional theater, which was a repertory company. That was my idea. And I suddenly realized as we were doing that first order of Murphy Brown that I, I had a repertory company right here. Mm-hmm. We were getting better and better every week. We were an ensemble. We were learning how to play. I was basically getting to be the conductor of a tremendous jamming group of musicians. And I didn't want anything else in life, really, at that point. Mm-hmm. And the great thing about it was, and you, you know, the accidental, the surprise quality of it, it was not what my ambitions were. At that point, I, besides the theater, I had done my first feature. I was looking for my second feature. And they asked me to do all the episodes of Murphy Brown based on the pilot. And I said, I, I can't do that. I can't do that. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I plan to direct films. And, and and amazingly, they said, well, we really want you to. And I said, well, I can And finally, I or my agent, somebody came up with the idea of I have to have an out. And so we made a remarkable deal where they offered me all of the episodes so I could do all the episodes if I wanted to. But I had a three-week out at any time I could leave. And that was, you know, films take a long time. So three weeks, was that's easy. No problem. So I was holding all the cards. And I figured, well, this is great. I can do this as long as it's fun. And as soon as I get that film I'm looking for, um, as soon as I find the thing I want to do next in features, I can leave. And what I never f- figured out would happen. So, and I was I was hot, and I had you know I had big I had William Morris in, behind me and ambition uh, and ambition <laughs> as we have learned. I was getting to read all the stuff right, and every week I'd read the film scripts that they were sending me, and they were sending me comedies, and every week I would read the script that Diane English was putting on the table, and just as a reader, I'd say. Well, the script I'm going to do this week on Murphy is better than that film. Mm-hmm. I connect with it more than that film. Why would I want to leave better writing for lesser writing? So every week I kind of re-upped my vows. It was like a romance. And every week I, I always had an escape clause at that point. I wasn't locked in, but I always wanted to be there at Murphy. And that taught me an awful lot. Really you taught me did, lot. I want to say, 72, 72 episodes. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think I did seventy five altogether, but I did the first seventy two. First seventy two in a row. Yeah, which is basically the first three three seasons. seasons. Yeah. Um, does well, I, I I do want to move on because I feel like I could keep you forever. But Murphy Brown was obviously such a momentous. D- it, does that show not get enough credit now? We don't seem to talk about Murphy Brown that much. I mean, it yeah, had no, these, you're right. It had these kind of high profile. Uh, obviously, the Dan Quayle thing was both. Just in the day and age of a Donald Trump, it's it seems benign now. But it was such a <laughs> remarkable thing that a fictional character got brought into the political zeitgeist and exactly. discussion at the time, which the show handled brilliantly to come back and and make that something that the character responded to. Uh, but I also remember, but 
uh, uh, Murphy's uh, breast cancer diagnosis and the way that was handled. Um, I am still angry to this day that a TV show episode that featured Barry Manilow singing made me cry um, <laughs> and and completely destroyed any element of what I thought was my own masculinity watching that. Maybe it was because I had a relatively new son in my life, and mm. that's an episode that, if anybody knows what I'm talking about, where uh, Murphy hates Barry Manilow, basically, thinks right. it's the wimpiest music ever, and they meet, and he sings a song about basically a child growing up, and she has these visions of her son in phases over time. I'm getting chills just talking oh, about it. Oh, that's great. It's an amazing, I mean, the show did some pretty remarkable stuff and some moving stuff and some important stuff for women. I mean, yeah. not since... Mary Tyler Moore and Rhoda and those kind of 70s liberated characters. Well, for women of a certain generation, it was the show. I mean, yeah. I still get that. You know, unfortunately, for better or for worse, you know, uh, you know, women used to come up to me and say, oh, my God, it's my favorite show. And then later on, they come up to me and say, oh, my God, that was my mother's favorite show. <laughs> and now some of my students come up to me and say, you know, that was my grandmother's favorite show. <laughs> Such is life, you know. But we but, don't talk about Murphy Brown that much. Well, I think that it was around for a long time. And yeah, it did 10 some years. important things. 10 I years. I, I think that I think that um, there, there's clearly two big screaming factors in, to that, because uh, certainly we got a tremendous amount of credit when we were on at the time. But. For one thing, the show, when shows then later on went on to DVD, we didn't. Murphy Brown did not. Because we had this, we, Diane had this wonderful but crazy idea because that, that Murphy was a Motown fan. So every episode would start oh, with a Motown song. Music rights. And every episode, instead of having those old-fashioned um, titles that were the same every week, we would do... a. A, a, a little story. We would do a little music video that was part of the story or a little vignette uh, to a music, to, to a Motown song. Mm-hmm. So we created one of those for every episode. The only problem is we did not own the rights in perpetuity for that music. Oh. So that has tied it up. So it's not, it's very difficult for people to see them anymore. Right. So they can't revisit and rediscover oh, them. I That's never a big problem. That. Uh. The other thing was that Murphy was always cutting edge topical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, we're making Orrin Hatch jokes <laughs> And, you know, that's going to be lost on a <laughs> contemporary audience, of course. That's you know? true. So that is a problem. Our punchlines had to do with politics of the time very often. They had to do with other things. They were human things. But politics were a big, big part of the show. And so that's uh, that's a bit lost. Uh, well, anybody who's listening to this and has any inclination to try and go find it, I'm sure they can find episodes. I mean, watch the frickin' pilot. I mean, it's just it's it's the first season is out on the DVD. first. Uh, great. Awesome. Only the first season. Um, but that basically set your path. I mean, you you became a TV guy. You directed so many episodes of so many different things and really yeah. good quality shows. You became a pilot guy. You became a pilot guy who could get a pilot to the place where it would turn into an actual series. Yeah. Um, Again, I don't know if you get as much mention as somebody like James Burroughs does, but you deserve as as much mention with the kind of Mad About You is one you, you worked on quite Mad a bit. Mad About You is one I'm very, very proud Such of. Such yeah. a good, another good show that kind of showed couples in a new light that hadn't quite been shown before. And, and 
again. And there was a moment in that. It's just like what we were talking about before. There was a moment in the shooting of that pilot that we took a lot of time to to make, and it was not a verbal moment, but there was a moment in the shooting of the pilot that I'm convinced was the buy-in. And that's where they're lying in bed at the very end of the pilot. And he, you know, he says something, he, he makes a joke, but it's not a, it's not a, it's not a line joke. It's mm-hmm. just a stupid remark. And she laughs at him and looks at him with this look like, you are such a <laughs> schmuck, but you're my schmuck, you know? And it was getting that moment to work. And it's a long story as to how that happened. Mm-hmm. But when we didn't, it was one of those tricks where we didn't, he, she didn't know what he was going to say and it came up surprising and all that kind of stuff. Right. But when that happened and when Helen actually left and looked over at Paul like that, I was, at that moment, I said, this show's going to go. That, you know? there, it's funny you say that because one of the most memorable moments to me is a scene, and you may have had nothing to do with it, but it, but it is the same sort of. Uh, conditions here where we have these two great actors and it's just we know their relationship by this time it was a and I don't I think maybe there was one word of dialogue but it was Helen Hunt coming out with the toilet paper roll um, with an empty roll on it and a full roll in one hand and she goes in just like in front of his face (laughs) and like dumps the empty roll off and puts the uh, the full roll on it and then just kind of presents it to him, and he just goes, "What?" And that was it. I mean, it's just a little blackout, like that's opening great. scene. No, that's um, great. But but so much of what you're talking about, and and the shows in particular that we're talking about, certainly do harken back to all the training and all the love that you had for what you were trying to do on stage. It was developing characters, and it was creating moments, and it was something that would translate to people in the room and then hopefully was was big enough to kind of shoot across to people's television screens and and ultimately it comes down to just being able to connect and and relate i mean i i i I guess that's where you started to find the satisfaction like you said it was like every week i was getting a great little play to put on that's exactly and it was just as satisfying as what you were able to do with some of the brilliant writers you got to work with yeah i feel tremendously lucky and none of it was a plan <laughs> so now you are uh i, sh- I guess i should have probably referred to you as dr bardett kelman <laughs> early on uh, uh you are a professor now and and still involved obviously in the industry and you but this is a new passion for you you're kind of imparting your wisdom to people and one of the things i told you i wanted to talk about and i've talked with some of the other usc mafia as i like to refer to them um things have changed so much. I mean, you have been in and observing the process of how broadcast television in particular has changed so Mm -hmm. drastically, how we acquire our content, how people are responding to content. Broadcast is still there, (laughs) but there are so many other ways to get programming now. And you're seeing the new generation of people coming in with ideas and seeing how they're responding to it. Um, has it changed that much other than just the pure mechanism of how the the content's being delivered? Do you see innovation coming through the doors when you're talking to younger people? Do they have a respect for all the things that you know in your heart make? I'm asking nine questions in a row here, but I think you know where I'm going. Are you inspired by what you see with who you're teaching and who you're talking to? The short answer is absolutely yes. I am inspired by it. I, I'm, I'm very excited. They come in with whole different skill sets. 
They come in with a level of sophistication about certain things and certain kind of technical things and visual things that I admire um, and I could only ever aspire to. They Most of my students are far outstrip me in, in a cer- certain kind of certain kind of visual literacy, certain kind of um, um, in a very fast moving world. Mm-hmm. At the same time, um, when they see the things we were just talking about, when they see it in front of them, when they see a scene enacted, when they see a performance, when they see good writing come to life, they respond as we all do, like children, as you did to the Barry Manilow mm-hmm. moment. You know, they they respond and they look at it like magic. They look at it like, how did that happen? How can I be part of that? So it f- the funny thing is that you know, people who aspire to do these things do so because they've seen great stuff that has inspired them, but they don't know what it is they're watching until they try it and see how difficult it is to make something not just look like a carbon copy of something right. else. And then when you actually sit with them and and, and help them make something come alive— they're tremendously excited. To some extent, they feel like, oh, my God, I've got a long road to go. But you know what? As long as if you can make them understand that the process itself, that the journey itself is going to be a joy and to have some patience with themselves on that journey, uh, they're down to play that. So the same thing that you had to learn through the apprenticeship, basically, of daytime TV, uh, uh, the uh, the way to tell a story is the same thing you're teaching. The technology may have changed the sophistication in terms of, I mean, I think about it now, too, when I was going to film school and we were making our movies and it was Super 8, non-sync sound. Um, we had to wait four days for it to get developed and bring it back. Yeah. The ability to technically, and, and even then people were accusing Spielberg and Lucas and those guys of being so technically minded that they forgot what real you know, storytelling was like, which yeah. turns out they were actually pretty good at that too. <laughs> uh, but sure but were. but my generation was so focused on the technical that I think the same thing happened. It was like, oh wait, when when do we learn? And part of it is just getting older. You're talking to, I assume, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one year olds yeah. whose perspective on the world is still forming as well. So the idea of of making a real connection and, and being personal and being real and, and finding that that's, that's a process. And that's, that's what you're teaching. That's what I'm teaching. Yeah. And that's all I'm teaching. I leave the other stuff to somebody, to other people <laughs> who know it better. Right. I right. mean, what, what I try to teach is what I think is timeless which what I, what I took from, from Sid Caesar and Charlie Chaplin and Billy Wilder and, you know, copying those guys and the honeymooners. I mean, that's what I'm trying to uh, – that's the fire at which I warm my hands and try to kindle a little bit for them. Um, and uh, it's rewarding. And I, and I also try to teach I, – I try to teach the joy of the process and the joy of the life of doing it. I, I have a couple of rules. I don't tell war stories. You know, I, I've been doing this for a long time and it could I could easily just – tell them about when so-and-so and this time with that. And and I could also talk about how tough it is or the disappointments and all that kind of stuff. And I try to avoid that. Yeah. I just try to talk about um, the stuff that sustains you 
over time, which is the work. It's the only thing, you know. The rest of it is too dicey. The success part is too dicey. There are no rules. I was totally wrong about the career stuff. Everybody's wrong about the career stuff. Right, right. You know, but what I do know is it takes a long time. I know it takes at least 10,000 hours to get started. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I remind them of that. And I know it's a marathon, uh, not a sprint. And I try to get them ready to run a marathon, not sprints. And um, if I can just get those things uh, inculcated, I feel good about letting them go. Um, it's impossible to predict where the industry is going, but are you encouraged by the fact that there is more opportunity for content out there? I mean, I know that there's just so much to plow through, but it does seem, from my perspective, to be giving an opportunity for unique voices that maybe in a traditional network setting something would never happen. I think that's true. I think more people are going to get a look, get a chance, get a shot. There are more places, particularly with the web, to at least practice your craft Mm -hmm. in one way or another. On the web, I think a lot of my students and people I know are doing things on the web which are the equivalent of what we were doing in off-off-Broadway theater where we were putting on plays for five people, 10 people, 25 people in the audience. You know, nobody's getting paid. And that's where we learned our stuff. And... In the broadcast world, when you had to have the whole, you know, you had to have the network behind you before you got to direct day one, that's a pretty daunting um, first step. Uh, so now I think there are going to be more people getting to build up, build their muscles, and and presumably more people seen. Are you? What are you liking right now? Did you finally buy a TV, by the way? I did finally buy a TV. Okay. I did not buy a TV until that guy offered me that job. And then I thought... At, for, with the daytime And drama? that was the first TV I bought as a quote-unquote adult. And um, the first TV that wasn't owned by my parents. That's right. And, uh, and, and, and the other thing that happened to me uh, at that exact moment was... What we call, I don't know, what are we calling it? The Museum of Radio and Television now? What do we call it here in town the, now? The Paley? The Paley yeah, Center. Center. So William Paley started what he called at the time the Museum of Broadcasting right. in New York. And he opened it that same year that I started. And I went and started watching that first stuff on, 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 on three-quarter-inch tape right. that he had at the museum. And I realized that all of the things that made me think I wanted to go into the theater were things I had seen on television. Ah. So I suddenly realized that I had te- I had television kind of in the, in the blood. How, why did I say that? You asked me a good well, question. Well, are, are you liking what you're seeing now? Is there something that that is your yeah. you're gravitating? What are you loving? Yeah, right stuff now? is blowing my mind right now. Like what? Uh, Silicon Valley blows my mind. So good. Key and Peel blow my mind. Brilliant. You know. Have you seen the trailer for their new film? No. Keanu? No. They've got their first feature coming out. I literally, ju- I posted something like, Oscars, you can do yourself a favor by nominating for this for Best Picture right now for next year, because yeah. it just looks outrageously wonderful. Those oh, guys are great. brilliant. That's great. And I don't like using that word. That's great. That's great. And obviously, this fabulous stuff, I mean, you know... Um, you know, Amy Schumer's doing remarkable stuff. Yeah. Trainwreck was fantastic. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, Apatow. What happened, you know, uh, Adam McKay's work in, in, in The Big Short is totally mind-blowing. Fantastic. You know? Yeah, there's there's really good stuff going on. I, I, and again, I think um, it, it's nice that it opens up. I mean, there's so much content out there. I remember when my fellow 
you know, film school guys and I were <laughs> lamenting the fact that it's so easy to make a movie now. It does open up to a lot of content um, and a lot of crap. But it seems like, at least now, when we're not necessarily going to be reliant on Nielsen boxes and things like that, that the cream can rise to the top because people just go find it. I mean, you hear about it and you find it. Good stuff gets found yep. because it has an avenue now. Yep. Um, uh, so now I, I've, I decided as part of my relaunch of this, uh, the podcast in this year that I would kind of create this questionnaire at the end, a la James Lipton, but not do his same question. So you're going to forgive, uh, have to forgive me, Barnett, because it's a work in progress. So <laughs> I'm, this may not be the final list of questions I ask once I kind of nail it down, but you're going to help me here because okay. we're yeah, going to see if these are good can. questions. Uh, some of them are simple. Uh, favorite movie of all time. Oh my God. Oh, there's gotta be one. What yeah, is it today? Bottom is line is it's going to be some like it hot. Oh God! Well, nothing wrong with that. Okay. Billy Wilder, are you kidding? Then I'm gonna then I'm gonna quickly want to say The Graduate. Then I'm gonna quickly <laughs> want to say Annie Hall. Then I'm gonna quickly, you know, want to say Shoot the Piano Player. Then I'm gonna oh, keep wow. going All on, good and choices. on and on. All right, I asked for one. <laughs> See, you've already destroyed <laughs> the questionnaire. Um, if uh, if as a former song and dance man, uh, if you were forced to go up uh, on a karaoke stage, what would be the go-to tune? Bring it down the house with. When I'm 64. Beatles. Yeah. Not, I did not expect that. That's a good one. <laughs> um, at any point in your career, I, I have to bring this around because of the name of the podcast. I realize I, I never reference it. Um, at any point in your career, have you or would you at this point still be willing to work with a monkey? Oh, my God. In a, in a heartbeat. <laughs> you haven't ever? Uh, I have never have I worked with the monkey. Have you I've ever never worked with the monkey. I would think I'm you'd too remember that. You think I'm older than I am. Zippy was a big star for Phil Silvers on the Bilko <laughs> show, one of the greatest shows of all time. But they had already gone through the J. Fred Mug stage by Uh-oh. the time I uh, I came along. So no, I did a whole movie with a sea lion. That's a nightmare I would not recommend to anybody. I love dogs. I love working with animals. But I've never gotten to work with a monkey, and I wish I had. All right. And finally, uh, just what can we expect from Barnett Kelman in the near future? You said you've got a play coming up? I've got a play coming up. Yeah, I've got a play coming up. Going back to your roots. Going back to my roots. I'm going back to New York to the Cherry Lane Theater. I'm going to to get to to direct Estelle Parsons and Judith Ivey, two fantastic actresses, along with two other actresses who are equally fabulous um, and whose name will be less familiar, but soon i hope will be more familiar and uh i'm looking forward to it i can't wait um delight to talk to you i've been looking forward to this for a long time and thank you for taking the time uh i feel like i could have kept you forever or you probably felt like it was going to be anyway but my pleasure sir and uh we'll chat again thanks a lot for having me get a monkey get a monkey This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.